can you sail under the command of a pirate? Or can you not? You don't listen, do you? I don't think you ever really hear me. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It stuck with me. I kept coming back to it, just trying to figure out where in the world we had gone so wrong that it had ended up here. Well, I didn't think you had it in you. I'm your huckleberry. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Why, Johnny Ringo. You look like somebody just walked over your grave. Fight's not with you, Holiday. I beg to differ, sir. We started a game we never got to finish. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? We've got here is... Failure to communicate. Some men you just can't reach. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. You don't tell your pappy how to cut the electorate. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communication. Oh, you are not at the time. Are you not at the time? Is that why you are here? And welcome everybody to the Pirate Professor Podcast. I am Billy Reader and this is your captain speaking. How are you guys doing today? Hopefully doing pretty well somewhere out there. Uh, it is fall, y'all. October 4th, it's 10-4. Um, in the year 2020. So many things are going on in the world. Um, first and foremost, it was a beautiful day outside today. Highs, you know, upper 60s, crystal clear skies, low humidity. And on top of that, I got to have a fantastic conversation that you guys are about to get to listen to. It is with a uh, fellow by the name of Greg Kendall Ball. Greg is a uh, photo editor for the New York Times. And that's not all. He's done all kinds of interesting and crazy stuff um, that you're going to learn about. Uh, super interesting conversation. I had a really good time. We went on for a couple of hours. And it was one of those conversations, like this is the first time Greg and I had actually got to sit down and just sort of talk for a while. Um, he, uh, we did it online. He is in West Texas and I am in Arkansas. So using the, uh, you know, the technology of the day, we connected. We've been Facebook friends for a while, but uh, we actually got to have a good conversation and I'm super pumped to uh, share it with you. Beyond that, what else is going on in the world? The President of the United States is currently in the hospital uh, with COVID-19. That's been a big deal. Um, 
at some point down the road, you guys are going to be listening to this, and this is going to be entirely old news. So whatever happens within the next you know few weeks is going to be it's going to be history at that point. Uh, but where we are now, we're like you know, we're at this we're getting into the final days before uh, an election gets going, and from a political standpoint, this has been just a strange, strange one. Every year, every time, they seem to get stranger, but I, this one tops them all. And, and they're campaigning during the middle of a pandemic, and now one of the two in the lead is sick. Um, we're hoping, you know, nothing goes south with that but uh, I don't wish I don't wish ill on anyone uh, no no matter what my you know thoughts may be on them politically so it's just kind of interesting the world's just kind of holding its breath what's going to happen next uh, and it's strange for the for us in the United States uh, because we don't really fully appreciate how far our influence goes because yeah you know, I got a buddy in Australia who's you know our presidential debates are, you know, broadcast live in Australia. Like, we can't even... I would guarantee you go down the street and 75% of the people couldn't tell you who the Prime Minister of Canada is, much less Australia. Uh, yet we're headline news there. And it's just kind of... It's weird. It's I guess it's just weird uh, to think about that. Uh, sometimes I think, you know... Should we be that important? Or should we be that entertaining? I don't know. I guess because it's honestly almost reality TV uh, as far as they're concerned for watching us. We are a spectacle. What else? I don't know. I don't guess I'm going to waste too much time. We've got more coming up and I've got a couple hours with Greg. And like I said, it was a good conversation. The only thing I screwed up on was I forgot to plug my microphone in that you're hearing me through now so that I ended up inadvertently talking through the uh, computer microphone the entire time and didn't know it, but it sounds fine. It's uh, It sounds fine, so I'm not too worried about that. It's just a little bit different. And I guess with that being said, I'm going to play us the uh, aquarium and then we get to talk to Greg. Catch you guys later.
recording in progress. We are now recording. Good deal. All right. Get this. All right, Greg, how are you, sir? Doing all right. Got a solid 10 hours of sleep last night, I think. Really? So feeling all right. Feel yeah, I don't know if that's a good sign. Just being uh, being that exhausted. <laughs> These last few weeks have been a little intense. Yeah, I want, I'm using my weekends to try to catch up. Wanna, yeah, I want to ask you about that. This has actually been sort of. I I have first time in my life I've ever like binged on Netflix here. So I can't, COVID has changed my entire everything about my life has now changed, and so I'm actually at the cabin by myself. So I'm like. I work for a while and I work for a while and then I go outside and then I'm just like, all right, now what? So, um, let's, so first of all, um, for my students out there and whoever gets to watch it, Greg, just tell me who you are. Uh, I know who you are, but they don't know who you are. So we'll get that out of the way first. Uh, all right. Uh, my name is Greg Kendall Ball. Uh, it's hyphenated to regular names, but when you put them together, it throws people for some reason. Um, do they, I get a lot of interesting mail. Do they ask you like, which one do you prefer? It's just like, yeah. Or some people think Kendall's my first name or like you go to the dentist and they start looking under the bees or I don't know. It's, it's, and nobody knows what a hyphen is. I've seen asterisks and slashes, uh, but yeah. Um, right now I am a photo editor at the New York times on the science and climate desks, um, for about two weeks now, which is, uh, has been a bit like learning to drink from a fire hose mm -hmm. before that I was living in Lake Tahoe and working for a commercial production company, um, helping produce ads, um, on the photo side for a very large Bay area tech company. The, before that I was, uh, living in Washington DC and I was a picture editor for, uh, nature, which is a science journal. Um, before that I was a picture editor at the Washington post for a little while before that I was in graduate school at the university of Missouri. Mm -hmm. Before that I was a journalist at the, reporter news in abilene texas that's always fun you know be a journalist then go to journalism school i find that well, that can be helpful on, the, on that note we're going to before that gonna, oh yeah. say, merlin man at some point when you get back to abilene so okay oh yeah and so before my newspaper career i was studying uh religion and theology in seminary preparing for an entirely different kind of career uh so that's uh i think i think on my on my website bio i talk about all the different jobs i've had which include like being a janitor and a, a waiter and uh I, I think for a for a week i lasted at a lumber yard in missouri um i've been a cookie artist you know it's i'm not it's really weird <laughs> i'm not ignoring you i just realized that you were coming on my computer speakers instead of through the headphones and I was like, oh, oh no, I, no, it's, it's recording fine. I was just like, oh, really now, muffled. No, you're fine. I was just like, something's different. And I was like, okay, sorry. See, even, yeah. the, even the professionals do stupid technical things. All right. Now, now we're, now we're good. All right. So, all right. One of the things that, um, 
you and I have in common in that world is like we both started out in this sort of world of religion and faith and then somehow ended up here. Uh, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I have found, but I found even since then that a lot of what I learned in that world uh, influenced, still influences a lot of what I do now. Uh, kind of personally on the way I approach it. Um, like before I was, so I actually started out in law enforcement after journalism school. So I, I spent five years as a cop, uh, which turns out wasn't that much different than being a journalist because, you know, you investigate stuff and you write reports. You just also carry a yeah. gun. <laughs> so, <laughs> but the, uh, but yeah, then, I, you know, I went to graduate school and then I got picked up by the uh, United Methodist Church to be their state communication director. And then I, you know, I ended up traveling all over the world with that thing. It was kind of, you know, their version of the national, of national geographic or whatever. And I was everywhere, um, which was kind of cool. Um, and then I went to Congo and that pretty much messed me up for everything else because that was just a game changer the way I experienced life. And, uh, so yeah. And then I just remember, I was like, and then you and I were chatting on Facebook one day and I was like, I think Greg may be one of the few people in the world who gets this. <laughs> Maybe, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think, um, and we, we can talk about my tattoo later if that makes, because it, it does kind of, of, uh, circle back, but, um, yes, the, the, I'd say 10 years. Uh, yeah. So when I, if I, st uh, nine years, I guess, mm -hmm. starting in college and then, you know, by the time I finished seminary and was still working, um, you know, I, I think there was a little overlap. It's not like I stopped one day being a, a theology nerd or whatever, and then mm -hmm. picked up photography. There, there was a period of overlap there where I was trying to make sense of, of my my faith and what I wanted to do and be in the world and this new uh, infatuation, I guess, with photography. Um, and then when I became a journalist, I, I think that definitely. Um, in, in hindsight, of course, at the time, I kind of regretted uh, spending all that time doing this other thing because I felt, um, you know, I, I didn't pick up a camera till, you know, seriously, till I was 28 mm -hmm. and felt like, you know, most of my, my peers, my colleagues, uh, if we're being honest, my competitors, folks, that, you know, you you're competing for staff jobs or you're competing for freelance assignments. Um, all those folks that I kind of saw myself as going up against uh, had a, a decade of experience on me. And so for a long time, I, I kind of kicked myself and regretted those wasted years. But then in, in hindsight, uh, it, it made me a different kind of journalist. Um, and for, for a while, I think one of the, one of the beauties of working at a small paper, like I did was, uh, I wasn't just a photographer. I was also a reporter. And I think because I could do both the writing and the photography, uh, a lot of days I was just, I was on stories by myself, uh, a lot of breaking news. Right. And, uh, in that, on that beat, one of the things that you have to do, I don't know if you ever experienced this, but is, is doing the death knock mm -hmm. when there's some sort of notable death in a community you got to go try to get the story, you know, knock on the door and say, I'm from the newspaper. You want to talk to me? Right. And I hated that, except 
um, it turned out to be some of the most rewarding experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a way to do it like a vulture. And then there's a way to really try to, you know, give a family, uh, an opportunity to tell the story of their loved one mm-hmm. beyond just the, the horrible or the, the weird way that they died. And in some ways, maybe my, my seminary training or my preparation to be a minister, uh, if nothing else, it just, it taught me how to talk to talk with people, listen to them. And I, I think I got in to a lot of situations that I might not have if I had not had that, that training. Um, I'm thinking of, there was one story where uh, a woman, young woman in Abilene was, uh, she was killed by a train. It was the night before she was supposed to go back to college. Uh, and she, her dog got out and she went to go chase after the dog. The dog ran across the railway tracks and this young woman was like hit and, and killed by the train. And so I had to go drive up to the house and try to, you know, at least give them the opportunity to, you know, to tell me no. Mm-hmm. And I get there and there's these two, it was a Hispanic family and these two huge uncles standing in the driveway, shaved heads, neck tattoos. I mean, very much like we don't want anybody knocking around. And my, my colleagues from mm-hmm. the TV stations were on the, the far sidewalk, their cameras on tripods. Right. And I walked up to the uncles and I, I talked to them and I said, here's what I'm here to do. Um, you know, if you, if you let the family know that, that that's kind of why I'm here and, you know, uh, just, uh, being empathetic or trying to be to their situation. And they, they walked inside and talked to the mom and she invited me in and over the next couple of hours sat around the dining room table, looking at pictures. And they told me the story of this young woman and talked, took me into the bedroom to, to see like her, her bag packed to go back to college the next day. And it was just this very emotional, powerful experience of telling, telling the story of someone who died too soon. And if I showed up and he was like, hi, I'm from the newspaper. You want to talk about your, your dead kid? that probably ends the conversation right there. Right. And so, I mean, uh, I also think, I mean, just, I went to a a liberal arts school that kind of emphasized learning a little bit about a lot, Mm -hmm. (laughs) history, you know, uh, art, world, politics, geography, just, I guess, trying to make you a well-rounded person. Mm -hmm. And then in seminary, um, I think I was also allowed to kind of, um, explore some more of my interests. Uh, I grew up overseas and I have a lot of family that is, uh, even though I, I sound like this now and I travel on American passport, a big part of me, I think is not American. And so those years in seminary gave me opportunities to, to look at the world and think about it differently. And then in a literal way, it was because of, uh, my, my ministry goals and my theology studies that took me to Central Africa, just next door to Congo. Mm-hmm. I was in Rwanda and I had never, never taken a picture, never photographed uh, anything seriously. I took, I took one black and white photography class in college. And it's not like the professor was like, you should do this. Right. You know, it, it was never, never really a thing, but I, I knew I was going to Central Africa and I should probably get some pictures to throw in a report. And I'd always been a word person writing uh, I read a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think back in back in those days uh, in seminary, 
I think each class had to assign 500 pages of reading per week. So I was reading a lot, writing 60, 70 page papers, preparing, you know, sermons or I'd always been kind of a verbal word person. And so I go to Rwanda and I have this digital camera with me, which was, you know, just a, a basic entry level thing with a kit lens and didn't know what I was doing with it. So I kept it on the green rectangle, but we walked into this genocide site, which was a, a small Catholic church where in the, in the area around the church and in the, in the sanctuary itself, um, 5,000 people had been killed in the 94 genocide. And we were there, uh, this would have been seven, eight years after that. And they had left the bodies where they'd fallen in this church instead of cleaning it up. And so it was stepping over bodies and skeletons in between the pews. And on the altar in front of this church was a, a skull of someone who had been decapitated uh, as part of the, the genocide. And so I just, I'm snapping just pure snapshots and half of them are blurry. There's no, there's no composite. These are just very, very bad photographs. And I came back to Texas and I wrote up, you know, reports and tried to, to give talks about what this was like uh, because my, my wife and I at the time, we were planning on moving back to Rwanda to, to work. And in our church, uh, you, you raise support from congregations. There's no like mission board or anything. So, um, a lot of people, you know, talked to them, they read about it and they said, Oh, that's, that's really terrible. Where, where, where are we doing for lunch? And we're just kind of want to move on. And then I put some of these pictures in one of the, the talks and people responded to those photos in a way that was like, okay, there's something to this. And, and back then it was still very, uh, I was just thinking if I get better at taking pictures, maybe I can get better at, you know, kind of making people care about this. So that was my, my, my desire. Uh, and a a few things happened, um, around the same time, Joao Silva, who is a South African photographer for the New York times had gone to Lake Volta in Ghana and done a story on child slavery on, on the, the lake there. Uh, kids whose parents can't afford to take care of them, sell them to local fishermen who put them to work on the boats at, you know, five, six years old, diving into the water to get nets. And mm-hmm. uh, so Joao had a photograph that appeared inside, um, I think it was an inside page in the New York Times, and a woman in Missouri, uh, who's a hairdresser, was on vacation in New York at the time, saw the paper, went back home, couldn't get this kid out of her mind. And it sounds insane, but she like, she flew to Ghana and found this kid and bought him like out of slavery and got him put in a, in a Ghanaian orphanage. And, and then she did that like over and over again for 150 kids. Um, rescuing kids from slavery because of a picture that ran, you know, not, not even very large in the New York times. Uh So then I thought, okay, pictures, pictures can make a difference. Yeah. That, that there's something about, it connects with people in a different way. And so I thought, okay, cool, cool. I'm going to keep trying to learn this picture stuff. And then, um, a guy named David Leeson, who was a photographer at the Dallas morning news, won the Pulitzer Prize. I think it was in 2003 for his coverage of the Iraq war. Um, he and a colleague won the, the, the prize for, for photography. 
and David was a student at the school where I was in seminary. And when you win that prize, your alma mater is going to invite you back to give a talk because, yeah. you know, <laughs> so, so he, he's invited back. And I, I, you know, I, I think every photographer kind of goes through a phase where they're like, Oh, war and conflict. That's like, you know, something that they at least want to think about. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I went to the talk and just remember, uh, you know, his pictures were powerful, but he, he talked about his career. He started out at the, the newspaper in Abilene, Texas, and kind of worked his way up. He went to New Orleans, went to Dallas, got to see the world. But, it, and, and I don't remember the, the content exactly of his message, except that he, he talked about what it meant to be a photographer in the world and what that allowed him to see and the connections that allowed him to make with people. And I just kind of remember sitting in the audience going, well, crap. <laughs> I spent all this time doing this other thing. I want to do that. I want to be a photojournalist. I don't know how. I don't know what that means, but that's what I want to do. And so I kind of set out on that road. And we can talk about that, or I don't know. Uh, I, like I said, I, I was in seminary for a while. I, I have an ability I, to, to I ramble now, on. So when I first got out of college, actually, you know, I, I didn't completely tell the truth. I spent six months working for the NBC affiliate in Little Rock as a videographer and an editor for them. And part of, you know, what I did was like the weekend overnight photog and my job in Mm -hmm. the late nineties in in Little Rock. And it was when, when HBO was doing, you know, documentary on gangs in New York and all, or in Little Rock. And, um, I literally, my job was to stay up all night and listen to the scanner and chase police cars and find body bags. And I absolutely hated that job. Like there was nothing about it. I hate, I liked, um, it was either just kind of dumb little stories or, or that. And, um, anyway, so that's when, and I, instead of chasing police cars, I started driving one after that. And then, but, um, fast forward. I got picked up by the, the Methodist church to do their stuff and they sent me to Congo and it was kind of a similar thing. Um, I'd had the journalism background, but I ended up taking a lot of photos and it, it was a different sort of thing, but I brought back cause the, um, brought back the photos and the video and wrote a bunch of stories and the Methodist church is, um, um, connectional. So one church is connected to all the other churches globally. And so they've got their own news wire, mm-hmm. they've got their own stuff. And so I took some photos, shot some video, and kind of through the course of that, they weren't fully responsible, but they helped start a kind of a catalyst of raising up like hundreds of thousands of dollars to go back to Congo to build, um, you know, water wells and other stuff. Because what was there was right after the Congolese Civil War. And it was like, it was literally the year after, you know, the mass graves were getting filled and, you know, there's... HIV was still rampant and there's all these orphans running around and it was kind of sort of the same sort of thing, but you, you put a face to that and then suddenly you humanize it in a way that, you know, people hadn't, you know, written word just doesn't necessarily do. And I kind of had sort of the same kind of moment you did. I was like, Oh, (laughs) Oh, Oh, okay. Now I get it. This is, this is what I signed up for. And then I was kind of all in at that point. I'm like, okay, this is, this is what I'm doing now. This isn't, you know, going to, you know, local movie premieres at the, you know, whatever drive through, you know, drive in movie. It's, we're doing the thing I wanted to do. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I get it. <laughs> so, so tell me about the tattoo. What's the tattoo? All right. Um, so uh, there's, a, I guess, a little bit of preface. There's a, there's a poet, poet named Constantine Cavafy. Uh, there's a Greek poet living in Alexandria, Egypt, back around the turn of the century. Uh, so like the, the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s. And he wrote a great, great poem that's kind of a retelling of the Odyssey. The poem's called Ithaca. And it is uh, a friend of mine from my seminary days when I was talking to him about kind of resenting the time that I had wasted doing this other kind of uh, preparation or, you know, study shared this poem with me. And it just, it kind of helped completely reframe that experience. Um, and it's, it's a retelling of the Odyssey, which hopefully your students are aware mm-hmm. of that, uh, you know, kind of the, the archetype of all Western literature. Um, and so it, it, I mean, if Odysseus gets on a boat, and sail straight home. That's that's like a paragraph, right? That's right. a very boring story. Right. But the fact that it took him, you know, years of all of these different, uh, it, it was not a very linear path, you know, right. setbacks. Uh, you know, you you piss off this God, but then you get this God in favor. And it, the reason that that story endures is because it's it's a hell of a story. And it's, it's, in in the poem, you know, Kavafi points out that it's it's the journey that makes you a wealthy person, not the, not the, yeah, uh, it, it's a very cliche, but I, I guess because the fact that it's thousands of years old um, mm-hmm. makes it a little more impressive than like you know vinyl letters on somebody's wall, right? Live, laugh, love. It's it's not the journey; it's the des- It's not. The, it's the journey, not the destination. Right. Um, and so years ago when I was working at Nature, um, their headquarters are in London. And uh, once a year, we would fly over to kind of hang out with our, our British colleagues. And the office was just uh, not very far from the British Museum. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was either a lunch break or a day off. I went by and uh, you walk in the door and there's the Rosetta Stone, which is pretty cool to see in real life. Um, and then the British Museum has in their collection a a vase or a vase, I guess we would say, of uh, a scene from the Odyssey. And I mean, uh, I don't know. You, a lot of people think this is Jesus, which is kind of funny. Okay. But this vase is called the the Siren Vase, and it's from the there's a there's a portion of the Odyssey where um, so the goddess Athena is is kind of looking out for our guy mm-hmm. and says okay you're gonna you're gonna sail past this island with these sirens and they're these i don't know bird bird ladies angels whatever they have these amazing voices and you listen to them and they sing and apparently it's so beautiful all you want to do is just kind of hang out right and then you forget to eat and you die and so she gives a, a little bit of a heads up and says you know take take wax and shove it in your men's ears and have mm-hmm. them tie you to the mast of your ship. So when you go by, they're not going to hear it. Make them promise that as much as you you beg, like no, 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 let me go. I I, I want to stay here. That they will tie you even tighter. And uh-huh. it's it's a it's a it's an interesting story. Um, and so there's this this depiction in terracotta or whatever of 
Odysseus being tied to the mast of his ship with, I guess, this temptation um, that he's he's allowed to enjoy a little bit of it, but not fall prey to it. Right. Because he was a little bit prepared. It, it helps when you have a goddess on your side whispering in your ear. Um, and so I remember just kind of th- that that image the poem that has become very kind of powerful a uh, reminder to me so i, I kind of in a cheesy way got to put on my my camera arm um it's just, it's a bit of a reminder that um yeah uh, even just just kind of reciting the weird long twisted journey that i've taken till now um it's kind of made me who i am and i i am kind of happy with the experiences i've had and um then Basically, I, just, I found a really cool tattoo guy in DC whose work I liked, and so mm-hmm. like, you know what? It's time to time to get something done. So I, yeah, I've always thought the, that, that the journey. The, I've always thought that, that particular story I thought um, was just a little bit of flirting with madness, because the, the the side of that and on the you know everybody else stays and you know they die. He hears it, achieves that level of madness, but then it gets taken away from him. So what are you left with after that? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I hadn't thought. Well, shoot, it's too late now. <laughs> I'm not going to go get no, it. It's not, it's, it's not necessarily but a bad I, I thing. Mean, it's just you, you've got, you get that taste. I, yeah, I definitely can see that. Um, I guess I, I thought it, maybe it's a, it's a good thing um, to, to enjoy a little bit of the, the maybe the madness. Um, maybe uh-huh. it doesn't go that far if you just get a little taste of it. Um, but there, there, there are things that are very distracting uh, in life that you could say, "I just want to stay here," <laughs> and then maybe you wind up dying on the shore. That um, like, honestly, that just sounded like Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never, guess nobody know, wants part, to leave. Part of yeah. another another part of this, and you know, we've known each other so long now. Right, we we can get real deep. Um, I was born in Tennessee, mm-hmm. just really not far from Arkansas. A lot of my my mom's side of the family is actually from Arkansas originally. I went to school there, but uh, I was born in Tennessee. I moved to South Africa when I was very young. My dad is uh, is. African by birth. My family left, his side of the family left uh, the UK and Scotland back in the 1700s. Different different branches went to the Cape Colony of Southern Africa long, okay. long time ago. Okay. Um, and so to, to kind of grow up around family, they, they up and moved us from, uh, I was born just outside of Jackson in, you know, all that black dirt cotton fields of, mm-hmm. of West Tennessee. And then we moved over to East Tennessee. Tennessee, up in the mountains, uh, where I became, I guess, like a little hillbilly. My used to get my hair cut by Dolly Parton's sister. Um, I don't think too many people so can like say that. Going... <laughs> <laughs> so we went from like the mountains of East Tennessee uh-huh. to Southern Africa, and then I didn't come back to the U.S. until '96 for college. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I had had these like American years, and then this this cultural shift of moving to South Africa when it was still under apartheid. And within a few months, uh, you know, I was learning Afrikaans and a bit of Zulu, and all my my friends and cousins uh, spoke 
within, I think, six months, I had developed a South African accent. And then because we never came back to the U.S. and kind of lost connection because we didn't really have much family in the U.S. My mom's an only child. So all the aunts and uncles and cousins were in Africa. Mm -hmm. I really feel like I, I kind of had this other this other part uh, of me. And then coming back to the U.S. in uh, for college and then not going back to Africa for it, there's a there's a phenomenon and it, it seems weird to be 40 and, and talk about being a kid but I guess sociologists have termed it the third culture kid mm -hmm. which is a lot of missionary kids military kids diplomat kids right where you grow up in a in a culture that's different from your parents um, and you're comfortable in a lot of places but no place is really home Okay. And so I don't, I don't know if that's one of the things that sort of appealed to me as a journalist. Like I, I have moved around so many times and I can be comfortable in a lot of places, but I, when somebody's like, so where are you from? I always have to ask like, how much time do we have? Because right. that's such a loaded question. And the whole point of, of the odyssey is this guy trying to get home. And so then I, I think a lot about what, what does that mean for me who doesn't, I guess maybe I'm I'm looking for that. I don't know mm -hmm. if I'll ever find that or but just this idea of being being on a journey trying to get somewhere whether that's home or just the next port of call. Now, uh, how yeah, many sometimes years, you get How many years were you in Africa? Go ahead. How many years were you in South Africa? 9. 9 and 9. How old, how old were you during those years? Uh 9 to 18. 9 to, Okay, so those are formative years. It feels that way. Okay. Yeah. I'm just I'm trying to, yeah. Um, you know, it's one thing when people are like, Oh yeah, I was yeah. there for like when, but when I was three and we moved when I was seven, but yeah, those are, those are, those are formative teenage years. No, I, I, I'm the only person in America. I think I know my age who's drunk from a whites only drinking fountain. Uh, mm -hmm. in high school we had, uh, we had a, a class or an activity called cadets where we were taught to march and drill and there was a firing range on campus because uh you were expected to do two years in the military as a white male uh mm -hmm. they had national service and so yeah um when i got to college in arkansas and would talk to my friends i realized my my growing up experience was very different from theirs uh, in a lot of ways no, you're South big, African. Big cultural gaps. Were you you're on like, the southern coast of like um, around the Cape in that area, or were you more like joke? We were on the east, the eastern side of the country. Uh, okay. The main city was called Durban, um, huge port city. I lived inland, a uh, little town called Peter Maritzburg, which okay. was fun to learn to spell. Um, that's where Gandhi got thrown off the train and kind of started his, uh, his activism. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, uh, fun, fun part of the country to grow up in back then. When we, when we were going to Congo, Congo, we would, uh, stop and, uh, we'd always fly in through South Africa and we stayed in Joburg for like a week each time just to mm -hmm. acclimate yourself to the time. Um, that yeah. was, you know, it was post-apartheid, but we did go to the apartheid museum while we were there. And then we went to, um, um, what was that? There's a slum. That was an eye-opening experience. Soweto. Soweto. Yeah. And we went to the, it was a Catholic church in the middle of Soweto. Um, where like, there's a 
the Black Madonna uh, painting is. And the, it was kind of, uh, I guess it's the closest thing to your Rwanda story, but they'd left all the bullet holes because uh, that's where like Desmond Tutu would hold rallies and or meetings. And, uh, but yeah. I, I remember, because we were staying at the Holiday Inn. So for those who, who don't know, <laughs> like in, in <laughs> South Africa, like that was the, the, you either are driving a BMW or you're living in a slum. Um, you you know, there's compounds, they, you know, they put broken and, glass. And they're, they're right next to each other. Yeah. And they're right next to each other. You know, every, like every big house has a wall around it with like broken glass or spikes or something sticking out the top. And I, you know, I'm me being me, I, I made friends with like the cleaning staff at the hotel. And so I started talking to them cause I was curious and, um, they're like, you know, no, we can't talk to you while we work. And then I remember asking like, well, can I like meet you for dinner or something? And I can, you know, and they're all, they're all black and they're like, nope. And I went, cause they weren't, they didn't want to be seen with a white person outside. Um, not that they didn't want to, is they were just afraid of the repercussions of it. Um, and I just thought this is a, this is a world that doesn't exist where I am right now, at least in the same, it, it, not anymore. Like I kept thinking, this is probably what it was like in the fifties or sixties in the United States. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So I can imagine yeah. you coming from that and then coming to Arkansas. Um, oh, the, the culture shock was massive coming this way. A lot of people assumed moving to Africa was, was tough. Mm -hmm. But I mean, when you're a kid, you're resilient. I adapted pretty quickly. Coming back, though, I remember going to Walmart, and there were you know two rows, two aisles of uh, of cereal. Like I think we had three cereals growing up. It was like cornflakes and some oat thing, and then like rice. Um, and and so like uh, I think a lot of folks who go to Africa for whatever reason on a, uh, a lot of mission trips or youth uh -huh. trips, they come back and you're just kind of confronted with kind of the affluence of this country and how much we have. And so, yeah, culture shock was much more coming back this way um, than moving over there. A friend of mine couldn't from Congo came here and he couldn't buy toothpaste. He tried to go to Walmart and buy toothpaste. Same reason. He couldn't make a decision because there was, he'd never seen it's two, 50 <laughs> toothpastes. Yeah. So. And, it, and it's, on the other side, it's so hard to convince folks, uh, some folks in Rwanda or, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Kenya and Uganda, Tanzania. Mm -hmm. They refuse to believe that there are poor people in America, that they, that not every, everybody in America has a big house and a car and is wealthy. Right. And, you know, to, to an extent that's true, but then you tell them like, no, no, we got, we've got a massive homeless population or, or and they're like, nah. You're you're pulling my leg. There's no way there's poor people in America, right? Which I mean, I think maybe that's that's one one of the things that appeals to me about journalism is this: it's a way to maybe kind of build bridges and connect people, and maybe lofty goal of fostering a, an increased understanding of our world and the people who live in it. Um, on a good day, I think those are the motivations. <laughs> Okay, I want to I want to hit something just so I don't forget. Um, who, who knows who's going to watch this or, or listen to it? But I know my students are because I'm going to assign it. Um, <laughs> what advice would you give to a young journalist right now? Um, one of the things that I run into a lot with um, 
my kids, uh, and they're not kids, uh, my students, is this sort of idea that they're, they're going to Arkansas Tech or they're going to some Division II school in sort of a rural area. You know, and we're going back to the idea of working for a small local paper, or the local network affiliate, and they think that's all they're ever going to be able to do. Um, for a lot of them, like the, the idea that they could be, a, you know, work at the New York Times or take photos for the AP never crossed oh, their mind. So what would you say to them? Oh, goodness. Um, so, so many things. Um, I, I think an interesting, an interesting discussion is whether journalism is a, a profession or a craft. Um, I think some of the best photographers and people I've known, uh, never, never have never got a degree. You know, they mm -hmm. just, they, they knew how to write or they learned how to, uh, you know, kind of, yeah, they, they learned how to do the job and, and could do it. The degree didn't matter on the reverse side. I know folks who have a degree, a graduate degree from like, you know, top, top journalism school doesn't mean they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, so there, there's not necessarily a correlation between someone's education and experience and their ability to do the job. So focus on doing good work um, wherever you are, that some of the, the best stories that are the stuff that I had the most fun doing was for this little local paper. Uh, I think it was a 30,000 circulation on Sunday, mm -hmm. covered a town of 120,000 people. But man, um, things like... We had a we had a recipe of the week where you you'd get to go meet somebody who made an amazing four cheese macaroni, uh -huh. and you write up the silly story. But uh, and I, I sent you the picture of the egg. I, I was just so I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the like, moment to I mean, go. Let's talk about the egg. <laughs> so I mean, like where, wherever you are, whatever opportunity you find, uh -huh. uh, amazing stories, important stories to be told. If if local news is probably more important now. Than, than maybe ever before with with the death of local newspapers and stuff like that like being being a part of a community knowing the, the issues that face it and having access to those people mm -hmm. um that that is going to be important and so you know aspiring to the new york times or the washington you know some big big journalism outlet that that can be good but i think you know don't don't aim to be at the New York Times. Aim to do work of a quality that gets you noticed and might lead to an opportunity. I don't know if that makes sense, but like it does. Don't say you want to work at the New York Times just to work at the New York Times. Do do work that I think there used to be a pipeline. You'd start at a small newspaper and then go mm -hmm. like you know you're you're wherever wherever you are in Arkansas, and then maybe you, you get on the Little Rock paper. Right. And in the Little Rock paper, you do well and you get noticed and maybe you go to Memphis and then maybe you get picked up. I think that's largely disappeared um, mm -hmm. just because the, the newspapers in that pipeline have disappeared. But um, doing good work. And then honestly, uh, maybe we can talk about imposter syndrome. Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm not I'm not going to say that I'm not an asshole, but I remember in in Missouri, uh guy named Brian Storm came and, and he gave a talk. He's an alum. He'd, he'd gone on and done amazing things at big outlets, uh, started his own multimedia company. I remember he, he talked in the, in the class and, you know, I think there was maybe 50 of us. And he said, don't be an asshole. 
it's a small industry and some of you in this room will wind up working for other people in this room. And so like, be a good person. And I think uh-huh. along with that, like be interesting, read books, know about things other than journalism or photography. If these are specifically photo students, um, nobody wants to talk to a photographer about F stops and shutter speeds. And I, some of, some of the folks that I think I've met get so into that. Uh-huh. The the technical parts of stuff that they they could rattle off all the specs of the latest Nikon DSLR. Like, what's the last book you read? Uh, <laughs> you know. right. So be be curious about the world, and then work hard, tell good stories, and be be a good person. Talk, you know, offer a hand when you can, and mm-hmm. pay it pay it back, pay it forward as much as you can. That's the only thing I can think that that helped me land where I am was just. Also, pure dumb luck doesn't hurt. <laughs> how, okay, so how did you? I mean, you've—I mean, you've got a, a pretty impressive uh, resume. Is that the, I don't know, CV, whatever we want to call it. Um, sure. Have I mean, you started out at Abilene, but then, you know, but then if you look, you're like, oh, but you also worked on the world's toughest race, and you did all these other things, and. It's like how I mean where so where did you make that jump? Okay. This is gonna uh I a large part of this is like it's still a mystery to me. Like mm-hmm. I still feel very lucky to have have you know made some of the connections. Um and I, I think it, it, it comes down to that, to, to connections and to to making them, to sustaining them. Not not for their own sake. Uh, in in grad school at the University of Missouri, I think there was sometimes there was a a bit of a a, a distaste for networking. Some people just mm-hmm. didn't like the idea that you couldn't just get by on the the quality of your work. Right. I think some people naively think if I just if I just go and do really great work, it'll get noticed. And I was like, that's just not the case. I mean, maybe maybe for some people it is. And so. Uh, one of the great things about the program at Mizzou is that they bring in all of these experts for their um, kind of extracurriculars. They mm-hmm. they ha- they host the photographer pictures of the year international competition, Missouri Photo Workshop, college photographer of the year, and so well, pre COVID they would bring people in. So like POI goes on for for two or three weeks, and you've got these judges who were like senior editors at National Geographic and the New York Times and the Washington Post, and they come to campus. Mm-hmm. And then if you volunteer to like run a computer and click a button, at the end of the day, the director's like, hey, come come grab a beer with us. And you go out and you, you have hamburgers and beer late at night with like, okay, shit, there's eight Pulitzer, I don't know if I can say that on a podcast, you can say, but there's like eight Pulitzer Prize winners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and you, you're just talking. Um, and I think some people maybe this goes back to like 10 years of ministry training. Like you, you learn to talk to people and be interested in them as human beings, not mm-hmm. what they can do for you. Right. Um, there, there, there's a guy, Emilio Marinati is an AP photographer in Spain. Uh, amazing photographer. He came out to, to judge one year and we're, we're in line, like getting coffee early one morning. And we just talked about, you know, work life. Did he miss his family back in Spain? All mm-hmm. the, 
I think there's a way you can do that. And you're like, I want to get Emilio Morinati's business card so that I can get a job from him someday. Right. Or you, you appreciate getting to learn something about a part of the world you don't know about. Like, so there's a way to make connections that is gross and, and is very off putting the, yeah, the yeah, tacky yeah, side of networking. When you start fanboying, uh, fanboying, just, yeah. Yeah. But just, uh, this goes back, I think, to being being curious about the world and wanting to, you know, meeting people. So I was, I was, yeah, I had two degrees in, in religion and theology, and I was living in Abilene, Texas, and I had this kind of desire to do something with it. Mm-hmm. I probably called the paper, I emailed, I was like, I, I want to do this, nothing. Well, I'm playing church league softball with a guy who used to be the sports writer at the paper. He he would write up blog posts like he was covering our church league softball team for the mm-hmm. newspaper. Would write these great game stories with stats and and I said, oh, you know, I I'll contribute some photography. This is kind of what I want. And he was like, oh, let me talk to. He connected me with the woman who gave me my first assignment at the newspaper. Mm-hmm. So like, <laughs> church league softball to New York Times is really not that indirect a route, but like. Right. So I, I got that first assignment and um, my former boss at the, at the, the, ad, the creative agency that I was working at before this said, sometimes you just fake it till you make it. And so I, I, I might have um, oversold my experience. Like mm-hmm. I had all the enthusiasm. I was like, oh yes, I, I'm a photographer. I and I had yourself identifying as I a got, I got, <laughs> I got sent to cover a luncheon at the Chamber of Commerce, I think. Uh-huh. I, I, I just, I, I think I filed 300 pictures uh-huh. and there wasn't a photo editor. So I just sent all these pictures to one of the photographers and he's like, what the hell are you doing? Uh-huh. And then the photographer was like, uh, where, where are your cut lines? And I had to Google like, what is a cut line? I knew nothing, but the thrill of seeing my first two column photo in print. And then I got a check. I think I made $40 on that first assignment. Uh And then I was like, send me to anything. I was working a full-time job at the university. This is what I want to do. I worked nights. I worked weekends. Basically like as soon as I would log off, I told them I was available for anything covered stock shows. I covered any, anything they would send me to. I just, I worked as hard as I could. The, the staff at the paper were absolutely instrumental. Like they taught me how to be a journalist. And mm-hmm. so for, for years, like they taught me how to write the, the first reporting assignment I got, I had to go cover a school board meeting and I'd never written a news story before. I didn't know about inverted pyramid or anything. So I just wrote mm-hmm. this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And the editor was like, Oh my God, it's going to take hours to like wrangle this into something. But, but then I learned and tried to do better the next time. And right. I kind of became like a, like a permalancer mm-hmm. and then a, a position opened up. Um, they had a, a fellowship or something. One of the, the, the other thing that I will mention, um, it really helps if people get pregnant <laughs> because <laughs> most of the, most of the jobs that I've gotten have been, covering for people on maternity leave. So one of the, one of the photographers at the Abilene paper went on maternity leave and that opened a spot for a few months. So I did that. And then that led to a staff job. 
And eventually I realized that with two degrees in, in ministry or theology, that might be my ceiling just because I didn't know enough. Uh, uh-huh. It was so busy. There were some days where I'd have seven or eight bylines in the paper, uh-huh. writing, shooting. It was just, it was nuts. And I, I felt like I wasn't improving. So going back to, to networking and contact, this friend of mine um, named Ron Erdrich, who's still at the paper in Abilene, said, there's this workshop in Missouri you should check out called the Missouri Photo Workshop. It's been going on for a long time. They really teach you how to, how to tell stories with pictures. Mm-hmm. And I applied. And I swear, my, my application portfolio must have been, it was nothing but like crappy high school football pictures and some fires. Mm-hmm. But, but I think Ron wrote me a letter to the, you know, uh, you had to have a, I think it's kind of a, somebody to vouch for you or, right. or recommend you. Right. And I got in, I got accepted to the workshop. And so I went, it was uh, September of 2011, went to this little town in Missouri. And I got put on a team with Craig Walker, who was, uh, at that time, he'd only won one Pulitzer Prize. He was a photographer in, in oh. Denver. And yeah, and then Chris Wilkins, who was uh, like a senior photo editor at the Dallas Morning News. And so for a week, those two guys looked at every frame that I made and kind of helped coach me and, and guide the story that I was trying to tell. And I remember like on a Wednesday uh, and the workshop, it, it's intense. It's a whole, whole thing, which I love dearly and would recommend to anybody, but uh, you're going on no sleep. It's, it's intense. And I remember Wednesday night, just kind of like, you guys, should I, should I keep barking up this tree or should I give up and like go back to, to writing and, you know, being a reporter and, and they said, you could do this if you want to. And that little bit of like positive encouragement, uh, found out through the workshop that I could attend graduate school at the university of Missouri, basically for free that they have, they had, I'm not sure what the status is now, but they had really generous assistantships and fellowships. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) back when those were still a thing, I quit my newspaper job to go to graduate school. Um, that was possible because I was married to someone in the medical field at the Mm -hmm. time, Mm -hmm. um, without without her support, it probably would have been much more difficult to like make that jump, um, to go back to school at 34. But I knew that it was, it was an important next step. I I wanted to, uh, I I wanted to teach someday. So Mm -hmm. I knew I needed that credential, but mostly I, I wanted to know about this field that I saw myself in. I wanted to know the history and the, the ethics. I just, I kind of, I had that nerdy bent to me. So I, I went to that school and learned so much. I went in planning to be a photographer and a friend of mine said, I, I know you want to be a photographer, but just, just take the picture editing class because that will help uh-huh. you learn how editors think uh-huh. and that'll make you a better photographer. And from the first week in that class, I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, and I kind of know my ceiling as a photographer and, and in this role, getting to work with photographers to be in a newsroom and to be an advocate for visual journalism and to, to understand the stories we're trying to tell and get the photographers in the best spot to, to tell that. Like it, it felt like a much better fit for, for my personality, for my, my goals. Mm-hmm. And so 
uh, in as as part of my going to school and my scholarship package, I got to be the the co-director of that Missouri Photo Workshop uh, my last year in grad school. And while I was there, I met Marianne Golan, who was the director of photography at the Washington Post. And same thing, go back to the small town in Missouri, and we're we're doing stories. And I remember we would just we would talk about picture editing and and what we liked about it. And it was I made this connection, which led to my first job. Mm-hmm. in dc and then that met people in dc and that led to my next contract uh ed- editing job and then i met other photographers and other editors and just you know kind of developed that network and made friends with the uh, people in the industry so that uh when when the job at nature the science journal came up uh a friend recommended me to the person that was hiring uh, i I don't know if I would have even applied to that job unless she had like reached out and said, Oh, I know this guy mm-hmm. and he's hiring and the job is, sounds pretty cool. And that job led me to, uh, well, eventually I got burned out on science journalism and left the country for a little bit. Uh, and then I came back and then networking got me in touch with Corey rich, who was running this company out in Lake Tahoe mm-hmm. and getting connected to him, um, through mutual friends. That led to that job. And then when that job ended, reached out to other people. So it's like being, yeah, the the network is really important, but you got to do it in a way that's not just sort of transactional. Being interested in people. Yeah. I I really felt that sting. Um, So I've been teaching, this is, I guess, year 14. Um, One of the problems, I'll call it a problem. It's, It's a trap with working in academia is uh, universities are bubbles and it's real easy to get into sort of a routine of, I teach these classes in the fall semester, I teach these classes in the spring semester, I make updates and you know, life just, and you, you, yeah. you work in that, that environment, that institution. And then the, the thing that you originally set out to do sort of goes on autopilot and, and, the, and I see it so many with, with a lot of uh, faculty members is, and I saw it in the church too. Uh, people get really focused on the institution rather than the thing the institution was designed to do. Um, oh, okay. and so from journalism, so I, I kind of got burned out a few years ago when I was like, okay, it was one of those, I sort of checked off a lot of like life accomplishment boxes. I'm like, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Oh crap. I'm out of dreams. I don't know what I want to do now. And so I did, you know, I did what any reasonable human being is. I bought a boat and, <laughs> and, so I'm, and then I moved to South Texas for the summer and, and it like literally two weeks after I got down there is when everything blew up on the border with the Trump's new immigration policy. And mm-hmm. he had taken my camera gear down with me. Cause I was like, I'm going to just do a little cute documentary about guys and their boats. I'm just going to interview because every guy has a story about his boat and I'm going to do that. And then I was like, Oh shit. I'm two hours away from the biggest story in the country right now. And I have absolutely no reason not to, I have a passport and I have no reason not to go. So I just drove down there and there just so happens a bunch of uh, uh, Democrat congressmen were having a, a um, press conference and I had, you know, I have my camera. It fits in with all the other professional cameras and, you know, and I just uh-huh. walked in <laughs> And just sat down like I was where I belonged. I didn't have any press credentials. I didn't have anything. I just sort of walked in and nobody asked me any questions. And I was realized like, 
oh yeah, there's all of these other um, news agencies around me, and I don't know anybody because I start and, and then you know I ended up doing some good networking and, within that world, and I thought I've got all this all these great stories, and I, and I don't know a single person to pitch them to, you know, without just going in completely blind. And I thought, and I just remember thinking, yeah, this is my own fault. I should, you know, I've, you know, I spent a lot of time focusing on the story, but I didn't have a place to put it. Um, I've like I've got my own website, my own and YouTube, but um, you know, yeah. I mean that that is that is one of the the frustrations of any I think any profession. Um, I saw this in seminary. They call, talk about the the town and gang divide between. You have people that when you get really into academia, that comes mm-hmm. with its own set of pressures to to research and publish and write and right. go to conferences, which means maybe you step out of ministry. And if you want to do full-time ministry, you're not you're not doing hardcore research and getting published. And so it's hard to keep a foot in both worlds. Right. And that's one thing I liked about the the two years I spent in Missouri was I got to scratch that academic itch. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I wrote a, a, a thesis on um, you know, the, the five layers of, of gatekeeping forces facing picture editors. And I got to do like actual academic, you know, research, mm-hmm. but I also got to go out and photograph and edit and put out a daily paper. Now, since leaving it, mm-hmm. it's so hard because you see you either, you either are a journalist and you do that 60 hours a week or more. Right. Like right now, uh, there is no way I could I could do research or writing on a scholarly level. Folks who get into, uh, you know, working in J schools, a lot, it, it's. I mean, you you probably experience this. I don't know if it's a teaching university or not, mm-hmm. but like you've got to, you got to if you want tenure, which means you want to be more than a, an adjunct, you know, working for pennies. You you got to produce a certain amount of scholarly content, which means right. maybe you're not running out to do the fun story. You are in the, I mean, I spent, I probably spent more time in the library in grad school for, for photojournalism mm-hmm. than I did actually producing journalism. But that was because that, you know, for that, for that period, that's what I was focused on. Um, right now I, I, I keep in touch with some of my professors from back then and I try to, you know, see, if, if a paper comes out that might be relevant, uh, some, sometimes there'll be something about eye tracking studies and cognition or perception that is kind of mildly interesting, but it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of thing that I would read like while waiting at a doctor's office. It's not right. It's really hard to do full-time journalism and full-time academics at the same time. I don't know if anybody's doing it. Right. Not well, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I mean, when when I was in DC, I uh, I taught at the University of Maryland uh, for a couple of semesters, and I loved it because I got to do my full time job. And don't tell the people at Maryland this, but I probably would have done it for free because mm-hmm. I got to teach this course. They don't have a they don't have a photo program, but once a week I got to go up there and talk photojournalism with young eager students for three hours a week and watch them grow and develop and talk, you know, about photography and what makes it good. And it was just like, that was, that was kind of giving me life while I had this job that was not, I I don't know. I didn't love it toward the end. It was a lot Mm -hmm. of, a lot of drudgery. And yet, but that's, that's, that's sort of like academic light, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) diet academics, teaching, teaching a a practical skills course um, was a lot of fun, but it's, 
Yeah. That was I, I used that for like my my mad money for my motorcycle. It was not a, a career. <laughs> that was my inroad into teaching actually, is they had a, uh, one of their professors left and they needed someone to teach the multimedia practicum. And at that point I was, I was sort of, I, I was sort of the cool graduate because I had a cool job and they would bring me in to do those little things. And they're like, <laughs> and I was asked to look and they're like, Hey, can you teach this one class? It's one hour a week. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Cause you know, college professor, I could be, you know, I can, I can wear tweed. Um, <laughs> I got the leather patches. Right. I can do, I can do all this stuff. And then it turned into, Hey, can you also teach the speech class? And can you also do these things? And, uh, right. But it worked out for me. You got to join committees and <laughs> well, it worked out because the economy crashed right then. And so did all my contracts. Cause I was freelancing and then I was like, I could use insurance, you know, and so mm-hmm. it turned into like a visiting position and then just went on from there. Um, so no, I, I, I get it. Um, um, man, that just, just, uh, for, for your students, it's out there on the internet somewhere. But a few years ago, another grad student and I, we did a, a survey on particularly photojournalists in the U S and mm-hmm. I mean, I think real, real talk, the, the economics of the news industry is a huge issue. Yep. Um, few years back, I don't know, maybe four or five years now, the New York Times published a, a piece on their Lens blog, um, an older photographer saying, everything is terrible. Everything sucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, rates are bad, and there's never been a worse time to be a photographer. Okay. The next day, a couple of days later, they, point, they published like a counterpoint from a young woman who had gone like from school directly to the New York times and was getting to do all these cool video projects. And she's like, no, there's never been a better time to be in this field. And it's amazing. And, mm-hmm. and so Josh Bickle and I, uh, who's a staff photographer in Columbus, Ohio, uh, I was during March madness chatting one day and we're like, okay, we're university of Missouri teaches, um, you know, to research and try to put some data behind something. Mm-hmm. So let's let's do it. Let's do a survey and try to get at, you know, what what's what's it really? You know, what what is the reality of the situation? And so we we kind of, uh, I think maybe we've both taken qualitative research at Mizzou, so we didn't know what we were doing trying to put numbers together. Mm-hmm. But we we came up with a survey uh, using Google Docs to to just ask people anonymously, like, how much money are you making? Mm-hmm. And then we're like, are you a man or a woman? You black, white, Asian, Hispanic, where do you live? And then like, do you have other sources of income? And it was, it was staggering. We thought we might get a few dozen responses from our friends, mm-hmm. put it out online. I think we had to close it when we got like 1400 responses. And wow. then we were like, oh crap, what do we do with this? No, no, Luckily I'm... somebody we went to school with was a, uh, like a Pulitzer winner for data journalism, at hey, the, uh, Orlando newspaper. Yep. So we called Charles and we're like, uh, Hey dude, if we buy you a bottle of whiskey, will you punch <laughs> these numbers? I don't know. Like whatever, uh-huh. whatever number people do, like, can you, can you make sense of this for us? And he put it in some program and basically spit out all of these kind of findings. And it was staggering that the industry was really, if you'd been at this for, 30 years and read an, uh, a union newspaper, you were probably doing okay. Mm-hmm. Or you were a 22, 23 year old college grad living in an apartment with five other people. Like there wasn't a whole, there's not a lot of middle class right. in photojournalism. It looked like. Right. 
Um, and the number of people who, uh, like we, we would talk, we would joke about the trust fund babies, mm-hmm. but there are a lot, I mean, and I'm not a, I'm not a trust fund kid, but like, I would not have been able to, to have this career if it hadn't been for, for my ex-wife, like putting me through grad school, like she support her, her job paid our bills while I was in school. Uh, a lot of people are out there and they're hustling, but they're being supported by a spouse or a partner or right. a parent or family money way more than I, I think we were willing to talk about. Right. And so, I mean, the economics of it are, that's, that's another reality that just as, as opportunities shrink, um, you know, starting off at a small news, I think my first newspaper job, I might've made $28,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And that's just not sustainable. <laughs> like, no. So as, as you know, uh, yeah, it's not, I don't want to like paint an overly rosy picture. If you just work hard and keep your nose clean, things will work out. I mean, yeah, that's I, the- I know a lot of talented photographers who are selling insurance right now. I, yeah, I know. I met one on the border who's given a TED talk and is, you know, occasionally kind of just reaching out asking for money. Um, you know, and that's just sort of the world that we're in right now. Uh, yeah. It's um, admittedly, I've hit this sort of point in my career, like where I've now I have a lot of time off. And so honestly, at this point, I thought, you know what? I really have the best of both worlds. If I can teach right now, but I have a lot of time off. Now's the time if I really wanted to dive in. Uh, and it's and I hate to say this, it's because I can afford to do it. Like I, I have my bills covered. Oh, yeah. And, I, and, and so it's not that I want to do it for fun, but it's I don't I'm not constantly worried about if can I pay the light bill this month. You know, I and I really wish people would talk more just in general about money and salary stuff. Um, early on in the early days of COVID, we were having a lot of Zoom hangouts, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a young woman who's a photographer in New Orleans, and we got on there, and everybody, you know, had a glass of wine, a couple of beers, and we started. We basically like bullied her into opening a four hundred one k because we were like we realized that's not something she'd heard in school. Um, right. And so you had all these old, older, crusted people being like, oh, you got to save her retirement. Um, there's, there's a couple of websites out there that call like who pays photographers. Mm-hmm. We should talk about rates and, you know, the expectation. I, I think if there was more transparency around that, at least it just gives people more realistic perspective of the economics of this and whether that's something that they want to do um, or because I, I I have a friend who teaches at Ohio State, and he's on a nine-month contract, I guess. And mm-hmm. so he teaches, and it takes three months, and he's got his bills covered, so then he goes and does whatever he wants. Right. And those are the – that's like – I know a lot of other photographers in journalism who will do commercial work to pay the bills to do the stories that they really care about. You know, they'll take pictures yeah. of some – you know, for whatever, some, some weird ad where they'll shoot weddings or portraits because, like – I mean, shoot, a law firm in D.C. I once made more doing headshots for their for their people than like a month of assignments. And so you take that money and you're like, OK, that that I can buy a plane ticket to southern Africa to go do this thing on rhinos or whatever. Let, let's let's segue this because this brings up a question uh, of <laughs> fairness is not really. It, I think I basically what I want to do is rub salt on wounds right now. Let's talk about mm. Instagram and influencers and the money that they can make doing 
what they do and then you compare that to, this is the, this is the thing i just remember I, I, I felt the hair on the back of my neck stand up uh i was actually of all things i was i was getting a, a tattoo a couple of weeks ago and my tattoo artist is a super interesting guy he's he's kind of like you he's been all over you know he's a former marine he's former, <laughs> he's, he's just like he just he he looks like he could kill you but he, he also when he talks he sounds like he has a phd um but he was talking about doing a tattoo on for one of his clients and she was now um an in, she was an instagram girl and had her own like only fans thing going and she told mm-hmm. him she made like $1200 that morning taking pictures of her feet and i just th- and i kept thinking life's not fair just life's not fair nope <laughs> no i mean well the fact that the kardashians have more money than Trump. (laughs) Like that's, yes, there there are massive inequities. Um, And uh, yeah, Instagram is is a whole weird thing for sure. Um, Like all social media, I think it distorts reality. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm looking, my, my, my buddy Craig Walker, who's now at the Boston Globe, has at least two Pulitzer Prizes that he's won. He's been a finalist number of Like, talk about, like, an excellent visual storyteller. Mm-hmm. He has, uh, has 2,100 followers on Instagram. Right. Which, see, like, are you kidding me? But then, like, yes, yeah, somebody, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a cute blonde, you could have 30,000. And, I mean, a lot of these are bots, but... Uh, or, for instance, uh, I was living in D.C. and got to go to the White House um, as part of some Instagram trip. Mm-hmm. And I had, I had interacted some, I think, with Pete Souza before then. Mm-hmm. And Pete, you know, is a celebrity photographer. Um, right. And I had this picture because Pete and I were talking a little bit about, I don't know, the ridiculousness of all of this. Um, mm-hmm. And I took a picture of him being posed by all these other Instagram people. Uh-huh. And I look like my Instagram followers jumped up by a thousand people because Pete Sousa was in my in my picture. Yeah. I was like, these folks are gonna be really disappointed when they realize that mostly it's stuff I bake and weird stuff that I see. Uh-huh. So I mean that that to me, like follower counts, it's completely arbitrary and artificial and does not matter. And um I've heard that they're thinking about like stripping away likes. Mm-hmm. Uh, like not letting people see that, which right. I think would be huge. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like all, there's that, that ego boost, that little dopamine hit when you see the, Ooh, somebody liked my picture. That's great. Uh-huh. But it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't mean you're doing anything that's important or good. You can be, you can be a cute person doing a weird dance and it'll get a million views. Right. So what? Like, and the money is just uh i don't know if you if you watch that um what was it called the social dilemma uh-huh yeah i did just like, the money the money advertisers are putting into this to sell us to each other is just bizarre that's what i mean like i'll, I'll instagram i i like i like the followers and the the likes and all that but also mm-hmm. i'm like Here's a weird thing that I saw. Like I don't, I don't take I don't, it seriously enough to try to. Yeah, I was become a celebrity. 
I don't really see you being the person who's working on your grid on Instagram, just trying to make it that absolute perfect. Oh. <laughs> I, no. I, on no, Instagram, like, I get, if I get 15 yeah. likes on Instagram, I'm happy. I'm like, all right, I did something right. 15 yeah. people liked it. So I mean, it, it, it kind of helps that, I mean, I'll, I'll brag a little bit. Like I have some pretty cool followers. And so when uh-huh. I see like, oh, that person liked it, like, that that makes me feel all right. Like when some right. of my some of the people I admire in the industry, like right. that's a good picture. Yeah. Like I'd I'd rather have that one that one like than fifteen thousand Russian bots or or idiots going. Ooh, that's some cool bread. No. I mean, I mean, have fun with it. Now, do you? As some, to, if somebody's been yeah. has been in there for a while, and now you know, when somebody, I would imagine you're at the point that people are trying to network with you. Like, are you getting young people sending you their Instagram and going, hey, check out my photos? Or is that a, a no, no. not so much? I mean, on the one hand, like, one thing I love about being an editor is that it it's a lot, mostly anonymous. Like, uh, we yeah. don't have our bylines and stuff. Right. Um, I do put I do put it on, like, my LinkedIn or my profile. Because, like, if I reach out to somebody, mm-hmm. you know, like, who's this, who's this guy I've never heard of? And it's like, oh, he's a picture editor somewhere. Mm-hmm. They they will return your call or whatever. Right. Um, I get pitches. I get pitches from people I know uh, or that I meet, like at workshops or portfolio reviews. Um, mm-hmm. I get a lot of weird pitches from people in India who think photo editing is cutting out things for for ads. Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> I suck at Photoshop, so they're offering me their their clipping services, and I'm like, yeah. Um. But yeah. Uh, I'm I'm just reminded of a story about kind of maybe the bad way of doing networking. Okay. And uh, so every every year, National Geographic has a a photo seminar, like a couple of days where they bring in. I think it started where they would bring in all their staff photographers to talk about the projects they're working on that year, and mm-hmm. it's 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 kind of it's a cool event. It's at National Geographic headquarters, and you get to hang out and see cool talks. And then there's these happy hours afterwards, which mm-hmm. are always fun. And you just get to you get to like meet some of your photographic heroes. And uh, I had I moved to DC, so this would have been January. The the, the seminars in January. So I'd been there for a few months. I'd been editing at the post for a little while and a friend of mine uh who is a a, a pulitzer winning photographer but that's like secondary she's a she's a fantastic human being like just a good person Mm -hmm. um we were talking and hanging out and we go up to this table of photographers and luckily i've I've, or over time i've like blocked out who they were but she was she was trying to introduce me around like this is my friend greg Mm -hmm. um and we're all kind of like cool nice to meet you and then like look, looking over my shoulder like who's more important that i should go talk to oh uh, yeah and it's like that's that, that's fine like that doesn't hurt my feelings so we we walk around and we're still talking and we wound up back at that table with all these people still still talking around and and she mentioned she's like you know i really like that that project that you guys published a couple of weeks ago or you know that week and the people at the table perked up and they were like what's what's that She's like, yeah, Greg is the the foreign picture editor at the Washington Post, and they just did this story, and it was like suddenly a switch got flipped. Suddenly, you were important to them. And cards started coming out, and so like now I'm the most yeah. interesting guy in the world. These people that didn't have right ten seconds for me twenty minutes ago, now like, oh, this guy might give me work, and and it was just like, oh, I'm never hiring any of these people. <laughs> um, 
because that's just so gross. But I mean, maybe maybe older and wiser now. Like, it's a hustle, and there's that. There's always going to be that kind of. Like, it, it's a little bit necessary. Um, mm-hmm. Still, I think there's a way to do it without being a, a weird, weird, off-putting person about it. But I did notice, like when I when I left DC and kind of quit being an editor for a while and just buggered off to Spain. Um, likes on my Instagram went way down. Uh-huh. So then you're then you kind of wonder, like, huh? Does so and so really like my picture, or are they just throwing me a like so that they're attached? Uh, that that's yeah. what it's like it's so, it's so arbitrary, and you can't put any real stock in it. But I mean, if you can sell pictures of your feet and make a ton of money, and then go <laughs> do a story on orphans on the border, like more power to you. <laughs> Exactly. I just don't know what to do with that. Um, Okay, so here's a question I want to ask everyone who actually works in the industry. These days, especially in Texas, uh, well, no, it's even in Arkansas. You know, I'll do boat charters, and they're like, you do this full-time? No, not full-time. You know, I teach journalism in 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 our, you know, I'm a journalist. And then, especially in this day and age, you tell somebody you're a journalist, and you sort of brace for impact. Mm-hmm. What and you know, and I've had these conversations with people. They're like, "There's no good journalism in the world," and I'm like, "Bullshit! There's lots of good journalism in the world. You just don't see it because right. you're getting kind of going back to that, you know social dilemma stuff. You're just getting inundated with a bunch of stuff that looks like it, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know that you know yeah. we can blame the algorithms or your own personal you know political bias or whatever. Um, so yeah. there's good stuff. There's really good people doing work out there. Uh, you just have to know where to." go get it. So you're somebody mm-hmm. who sees a lot of work from a lot of places. What, like, what is your, I don't want to say diagnosis, but what would you say the temperature of journalism is right now in the world? Um, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm biased, but um, I mean, I, I think there, there is, there's incredible journalism being done. And I have people in my own family who, you know, call the New York Times fake news and all of it's fake news. And how can you trust this? And everything's slanted. And what I I, I tell them my own personal experience, like having been inside those organizations and you learn about the the structures and the processes. Mm -hmm. And then you learn the people like you actually work alongside these colleagues and you learn that you can trust them. And you trust like there's a structure, right? Um, it, it was interesting with the, with the, I think it was the tax stuff or, or something. People kept making a huge deal about these anonymous sources. Mm-hmm. And it, we don't talk about like what a problem media literacy is in this country. Mm-hmm. People don't know how to consume news. Right. But it's like, that doesn't mean they're not known. Um, an anonymous source, of course, the reporter knows who it is and probably their editor and a couple of layers above that know exactly who this person is. They're right. just not naming them. It's not some not some idiot calling up me like I got dirt. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would I would say Donald Trump himself has been an anonymous source at the White House for a number of articles, but people see that and they're like, ah, you can't trust it. And it's like, well, I know the process and I know the structure that says, uh, like for instance, at the New York Times, every story that is published has have at least two sets of editors' eyes on it. Mm-hmm. So. And and then seeing the the back channel discussions about you know is this accurate is this right and every every journalist I've known and have worked with wants to get it right more than anything 
They want to understand and get it, get it right and tell the truth and communicate that because that's important. So mm-hmm. it's my, my bias is towards trusting the journalists that I've worked with and especially at the places that I, that I have sort of some inside knowledge of because I know how the sausage is made. And in that sense, like I trust the sausage makers, so I, mm-hmm. I can trust the sausage. So, but man, there's also a whole lot of bad stuff out there. And being a smarter media consumer, I think, is the only way to combat that. Because, like you mentioned, algorithms, the data. I mean, you're you're up against supercomputers trying to program you, and the only way you can fight against that is to to make your own choices and to seek out stuff, not just consume what's put in your path. What do you think is the biggest thing that people who are outside of journalism but think they understand it don't get? Like, what are what what's the thing that they're not seeing? Oh man, the, I I would say well they they don't understand necessarily the, the processes mm-hmm. uh, of fact checking of verifying of uh, you know getting getting things from from multiple sources. And then the biggest difference, and I, I think cable TV and any any newspaper or website could do a better job of highlighting the difference between news and opinion. Mm-hmm. And I think people conflating those two, um, I think that might lead to a lot of the, the assumptions of bias. Well, of course, that columnist is biased. That's their job. They are paid to have a point of view and to to get it across. News is different. That it's 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 produced differently. And because, I guess to to overplay the analogy, because people don't know how the sausage is made, they think that they're consuming something that that is probably very different from what they what they are actually consuming. I think a lot of what they sense. yeah, a lot of what they see is is coming from social media, and the thing that the social media feeds from just about every pub, mainstream publication though are, are heavily you know opinion pieces. You know, it's it's very. Because yes. they get more clicks, and they don't understand that if you actually go to the yeah. actual website, they're going to see more like straight yes. line news. Now, I, I do think, and I'm not – another thing I think a lot of people don't understand is that there are pretty – usually pretty strong dividing walls between sort of the editorial part of a newsroom and the business side. Mm-hmm. So the part that's selling ads and wondering about how to make money, mm-hmm. there's usually a pretty strong – great wall between that and the people who actually produce the news. And so this, this idea, I, I do, I guess I would push back a little bit. The idea of clickbait. Mm-hmm. I don't know that a lot of places out there are actually making money off of the fractions of a penny that somebody gets if they click on a headline. The headline is designed to capture your attention, drive you to, to take the story. And then ideally you're like, you know what? I trust this organization to keep doing good work. I'm going to subscribe. Right. And that's how, that's how, that's the revenue. I think most places are, are taking. Now you've probably got a bunch of shitty websites who are absolutely just click farming and trying to, because they, they, they have like maybe one person or it's a server farm in, in, or they're subsidized by a foreign government, mm-hmm. but all they want is the traffic. And then you see these crappy ads and, you know, a story divided over eight pages. So you have to click and all that artificial, but you, I don't think you see a lot of serious news outlets doing bullshit like that, that yes, at the New York times, there will be discussions about the headline to Mm -hmm. optimize it for search engines, 
but not because you click on it's like, woohoo, we made another half a penny. Right. It's to get you to read that story. And then within that story, all these other stories we've done on that topic to try to expand your understanding of it, to, to give a fuller picture of whatever the, the story is. And then you go, you know what? This is worth my $4 a month. I'm going to subscribe. Mm-hmm. I think, but it, it's also really easy to dismiss. Oh, they just want to sensationalize and they just want my clicks. And I'm like, ah, maybe the bad ones do. Uh-huh. But again, like don't just consume the stuff that's in your feet. Because again, like you mentioned, the opinion pieces are the ones that are going to, like that's going to stir people up. Right. That's the, the stuff that's more divisive. It gets shared more easily because you're either angry about it. You want somebody else to be angry about it. And, you know, the other, the other news uh, sometimes is not, not that exciting. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we did a story that I thought was pretty fun about the way these lizards in South, Southern California, um, some of their mating practices. It's a fun little visual story about lizards. Mm-hmm. Compa- compared to Trump paid off a porn star for sex, like <laughs> those are entirely different universes of engagement away from each other. Right. Um, and so, yeah, w- which of those is going to appear in your newsfeed more often? Or an opinion piece from some opinion columnist telling you Trump is a good person or a bad person or do this or that versus here's how some interesting lizards mate in Southern California. <laughs> Things are going to be put in your way because of, yeah, these computers that, that want to sell you more stuff. Let me let me jump on something real quick. Here, um, which it sparked a question I had. Um, so, for those who don't know, I mean, you're currently working for the New York Times, but you're not in New York. You're actually hanging out. In no, Lubbock. you're in Lubbock, Texas, right now, right? I'm in I'm in Lubbock, Texas. Yep. Okay. Got my got my Topo Chico and my uh, <laughs> yeah. We're getting so, an HEB uh, in at the end of this month. So I'm I'm very excited. Man. Eight, uh, say, the two greatest things about South Texas have been HEB and Stripes. The, I don't know. If, the, oh, Stripes. Stripes gas station. You can, I've never found tacos that good at a gas station in, in all my life. Oh. <laughs> but yeah. uh, <laughs> anyway, one of one of the arguments that I've heard in the past and is that, you know, you just can't trust, like, let's say the New York Times or the Washington Post because – well, at least New York Times. Well, they're in New York and they're in their own bubble and they don't know what life is like out here in good old, you know, flyover state, West Texas. Um, how do you feel about that? I mean, I, I guess in the world of COVID, everything oh, is, I, everything's I mean, changed. It, it is. I mean, I, I definitely think there's some there's some critique to that. Um, that's weird. I just got a notification that we're detecting background noise from your microphone. Uh, everything sound okay on your side? Sounds fine to me. Okay. I will ignore that then. Okay. Um, I think there's definitely some critique to be had there. Um, a lot of times people will criticize kind of the elite nature, uh, right. because it goes back to that pipeline. Um, I would not have made the connections that I made in my career if I hadn't gone to university of Missouri, which I think some people would, would argue is the best journalism school in, in the country. Um, I think that's debatable, but um, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks at the times are, are Ivy league educated and there's mm-hmm. a certain 
the, I think there's a, an importance attached to that sometimes that um, that it's not always merited. Just because somebody went to Harvard, yeah, they're probably a smart person, but that doesn't mean that they're they're better at what they do than somebody who went to a trade school in Kansas or whatever. I've worked right. with people, um, you know, uh, all over the place, and I think maybe they're the products of that kind of that former pipeline. Mm-hmm. But I think I read the New York Times newsroom is 1,700 people from all over the world, all over the country. So even even people who might be working from their apartments in Brooklyn right now, they grew up in Kentucky or Illinois or Oklahoma mm-hmm. or the far west, and they they know things about that. I mean, honestly, I, I wish I wish one of these billionaires that that buys a newspaper would would go ahead and, and invest in like I mean if, if you hired a hundred reporters to just be in the, the state house of every capital, mm-hmm. uh, you would improve some of that local reporting. I mean, I would love to see bureaus. A lot of these big papers will have uh, bureaus ac- across the world. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see, you know, some more regional kind of stuff. But uh, kind of like with with cable TV, stuff that's done at the local level mm-hmm. percolates up. Um, these big newspapers and news organizations are always looking for stuff that's happening on the ground. Um, but I mean, uh, yeah, I think it, it kind of goes both ways. Um, for instance, there there are more subscribers to the New York Times in California than there are in New York. Interesting. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that, that they talk about sometimes is like catering to your audience. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna do we're gonna do stories that matter to our readers. And if we had if we had a million readers in Texas. You'd probably see a lot more Texas coverage. You'd probably see some reporters based here more often, more stories coming out of it. Um, I don't know. I'm just kind of rambling. And I'm not like an executive. I'm not making any of these decisions. Right. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, good, st- stories is from all over the place. And and that that's another thing that I hate hearing. And you see it uh, on Twitter so much. It's a meme mm-hmm. that someone will link to a story and say the mainstream media is not covering this. And it's like you're you're linking to a story right <laughs> now. Literally someone right who here. is covering this. Like right. Yeah. So don't like that's a that just that's dumb. Um so I mean it, it's also weird that you know newspapers used to cover their communities. I think a, a town like Abilene, Texas, 120,000 people at one time probably had four or five newspapers. Mm-hmm. And there's the thing of media consolidation. Uh, they all used to be, you know, mo- mostly locally owned. Right now, Gann- Gannett, who owns USA Today, owns what, like half the newspapers in the country. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the newsroom that I work in, that I worked in in Abilene, when I left, there were maybe 15 people to cover a town of 120,000 people and 23 West Texas counties. Mm-hmm. Like that's just that's impossible. Now it's it's maybe half that. Yeah. Thirty years ago, I heard there were seventy five people in that newsroom. There was like a separate oil and gas desk, like with an editor and special reporters. As because people don't subscribe to local news. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know the the horse is out of the barn. It's not like I don't know if we can ever go back to that. 
but when hedge funds start buying papers and it turns on profitability uh, and and value for shareholders, of course they're going to keep cutting positions. Right. I mean, at one time there were two of us covering cops and crime for a city of 120,000 people with a police department, sheriff's department, and then all those counties. Uh, you know, who's going to county government meetings to to look at contracts being offered? You know, uh, I think David Simon, who wrote The Wire mm-hmm. uh, and was a longtime journalist at the Baltimore Sun, I think, testified in front of Congress years ago that if you're a, if you're a corrupt politician, right now is the best time to, like, do crimes because nobody's watching. Yeah, nobody's paying attention. And in a, in, and in a way, it's kind of like, do these do these communities that don't support their local journalists, their their you know supposedly the, the watchdogs, like when your when your water system craps out or gets gets poisoned because some contract was given to somebody, like I don't know, but it's not like in Abilene right now. You who can you subscribe to that's not some big corporate paper? And there's three or four stories locally, and all the rest is just wires from mm-hmm. whatever. So the, I mean, the industry is, is, is in a horrible place. And then you're a place like the New York times and you're the paper of record for an entire country in some ways. Um, I'm not going to say that the times is perfect that what they choose to cover and how to cover it. But uh, I'd say there's stories that get covered because the New York times is interested in it. That would never get covered otherwise, even in smaller rural flyover country places. Right. I, I, when I found out like the local reporter may, may be turning in five stories a day and I was just like, there's no way you can spend any time and get quality there. You're just turning out words at that no. point. So Abs- absolutely. <laughs> okay. And, and I mean, things like, like, I mean, investigative journalism where so yeah. much corruption gets uncovered and stuff, you've got to have skilled journalists who are experienced spending weeks digging through thousands of documents. Sometimes mm-hmm. you FOIA documents and you want you want the, the hard info. Mm-hmm. There's a huge cost associated with that a lot of times. Thousands of dollars. So a story like the like you know some big investigative piece could represent hundreds of thousands of dollars of investment in staff salaries and benefits and documents and just the time to do that. And people are like, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pay four dollars a month. Ah, yeah, pay Yeah, you know. Well, one of the things I've, I, I've been kind of astounded by a lot. With, you, you talk about FOIA, so the Freedom of Information, Freedom of Information. How easily I've seen government agencies just sort of ignore those things, even locally. They're just like, I get an FOI, <clears throat> throw it in the trash. You know. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do about Zooming? it? And, yeah, because you don't, you know, that that public yep. person doesn't have a, you know, a lawyer on staff or can't afford to do this, so they just ignore it. Mm-hmm. Just like, yep, this is not where we need to be. Tell you what, let's make a shift to something a little more pleasant. I've noticed. All right, you are. I'm gonna give you three topics. All Dave Holloway. All Dave Holloway. <laughs> um, what? Oh man. Baking, boxing, and kissing a boy. These are the three Dave Holloway. I don't know. He gave me no context for any of them. He's like, they're all good yeah. stories. Um, but the thing that I kind of want to start with is in the last two days, I've seen you post pictures drinking or with the Lone Star beer can in somewhere in the frame. Mm-hmm. Give me your thoughts on oh, Texas yeah. beer and specifically Lone Star because backstory is – 
when I would do insanely charters, we would, you know, you don't have an alcohol license, but sometimes you'll keep complimentary stuff. And, and I always kept Lone Star beer on the boat and I couldn't drink with the end of the day after it was hot and doing all that. That was, that's what I went for. I just, and I just called it, you know, shitty Texas beer, but it's it for whatever reason, there it is. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm not going to pretend that it's a great beer, right? But it is it is it's cheap and it's it's pretty good when it's ice cold. And so I guess I learned uh, owned a house in Abilene and mowing the lawn, which is really just kind of like moving a lawnmower over dirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, an ice cold Lone Star after that, is, yeah, it's great. And then I, I think it's it's much more of a nostalgia. I kind of like the. I'm not a Texan. I've lived here for a long time, but uh-huh. I, I don't claim any, you know, I think you, you know enough Texans to know that they, they get kind of precious about the state that they're from. Yep. But I kind of like that it, it pokes a little, it's the national beer of Texas. Uh-huh. I like the little, little puzzles under the bottle caps. Uh-huh. Those are fun. But yeah. uh, in grad school, yeah, you get them, get dollar long necks. And when you're on a student budget and you want to post up in a bar for a while with your friends, you, I'd rather have I'd rather have you know a few Lone Stars than a fifteen dollar cocktail. Now yeah. on the other end of that, I am I am pretty into. Uh, I'm looking at my my box of of really good single malt scotch. Uh-huh. So you know I, I like I like to I like. To, so you're not I like to not be easily categorized. I, I, I'll I'll take a, a cheap Lone Star and a and a really nice scotch. At the same time, there are many layers to my onion. I mean, my personal preference is always is Shinerbach, but the. Uh... But yeah, there was a there's yeah. a local there's a pizza place within walking distance of the marina and they would always do dollar slice night. But you could get it was dollar slice night plus like dollar lone star. And we would sit there and we drink and then you try to figure out these ridiculous puzzles on the bottom of, of the cap. They get hard they get harder the just, longer you'd go. Yeah. <laughs> so after the seventh one, you're like, I can't even read that. I just yeah. yeah. I, I no, saw those photos. It's, I was kinda, like, it's a nostalgia thing and yeah. I, Speaking of David Holloway, I think it uh-huh. was it was uh, his friend Anthony Bourdain who was basically like, "There's so much bullshit in the world. The people telling you you gotta, you know, you gotta have a ten dollar IPA to be." I'm like, "No, right. drink what you like. Yeah, enjoy what you like." I'm not gonna. I'm not pretending that Lone Star is, you know, an excellent beer, but it's it's good. It's, it's fun. Good. It's good. And I'd, rather, hot. I'd rather have. I'd rather have a cheap shitty beer with good friends than you know the the world's greatest craft beer in some douchey bar by myself speak uh yeah speaking of Bourdain, do you have waffle house in west or west texas no i don't think so we have waffle house all over the place here but you can't find them south of houston and i thought as many people in south stay up all night drinking and y'all, y'all don't have waffle houses. I don't know how you manage. So I was just curious. Uh, looks like the nearest, the nearest waffle house is in Amarillo, which makes sense. It's up on a highway or an interstate. Right. So forty. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that takes care of the uh, Lone Star beer question. The other, and okay. the, we'll go with boxing. Uh, Oh, Dave said he ran into you one time. You were you were, you had gotten into cardio boxing, and he said it was kind of inspiring because you yeah. had just decided to get in shape, and that's the path you chose. Man, yeah. So I, I I've put on a little bit more 
in the COVID times related to my, my baking. Um, mm-hmm. Carbs are not your friend at after 40, which I'm right. I'm aware you may be aware of. Um, and so living in DC, I was, I was commuting, you know, at least two hours a day at this job. I didn't love uh, eating. I, I just, I, I was getting fat and out of shape and mm-hmm. my wife would try to encourage me to work out. I'm like, yeah, yeah screw it. And then one day I decided, like, I never enjoyed exercise. Uh, I was always a nerdy kid. I'd, in South Africa, we had to do sports, and I wasn't good at them. It was never a thing. I was always more academically oriented. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, I did a story at a workshop one time on a, on a boxer. Um, and just remember, dude was in, like, great shape. And because like weightlifting and running and all that kind of stuff was just so boring. Uh, there was a gym in my, in my neighborhood that like a free, free class. It was like one of these mommy boxing kind of things. Mm-hmm. I think the first class I went to was me and like 10 older Asian women. Um, but, but the trainer was this guy who like fights on Showtime. Like this is his side hustle as he teaches people to box mm-hmm. you know, for money. And so, you know, got the, got the wraps and the stuff and he was like, all right, you know, so the, the ladies are over there kind of doing their, their thing. And there were a couple, you know, really get into it. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think the first, the first month I did it, I probably lost 10 pounds. Cause it, it was one of these like, yeah, cardio box. I, I don't need to get hit in the face. Right. Uh, I have another friend, James, James Gregg. I don't know if you, if you run into him. Mm-mm. Uh, he was, uh, he's a photojournalist, photo editor. He was down in Austin. Um, and he got into boxing and was just, you know, sparring friendly, friendly bout and a guy snapped off a punch just right. And it like broke his orbital bone. And the doctor was like, you, you can't do this anymore. Um, but also like, I, yeah, I don't want to get hit. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I wasn't like boxing to fight, but man, get in, get in there and do with a 16 ounce glove, like doing that a thousand times, like it hurts. It's a, it's a workout. Yeah. And foolishly, I thought it'd be a way to kind of, you know, tone right. up a little bit. Right. I didn't realize what an all body kind of thing it was like punches start, you know, down at your feet. And I just, I loved it. Um, and so I, I could go into the gym and um, it was great cardio. It was good strength training and a little bit of therapy, you know, whatever mm-hmm. you're envisioning on that bag, just wailing on it for a while. And at mm-hmm. the end of it, you're sweaty and tired and what I learned is that I could do that a few times a week and keep eating like crap. Like, you know, you go box for an hour and you can have a half a pizza and you still, right. You know, eventually I, I lost like 50 pounds. I got back into the clothes I was wearing in college, at least the sizes, thankfully not the, the same fashion. Um, late nineties in Arkansas, not exactly a, a highlight of couture. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I loved it. And Boxing eventually got me into running because uh, this guy, uh, Action Douglas, is like in his 20s, 4% body fat. And, you know, you're, you're in the gym and he's like hitting you in the abs with a medicine ball. And you're uh-huh. just, I was dying. So I decided to start running so that I could keep up in the gym. And then a friend was like, you're running quite a bit. Let's do a half marathon. And then I realized as, as I moved around the world, it's a lot easier to run uh-huh. than it is box. Because to run, you just need pair of shoes yeah and so then yeah i haven't i haven't been near a gym in a while but anybody looking for an exercise like it's 
it's fantastic. I got in the best shape of my life doing it and didn't have to get hit in the face. So hey, don't, don't let anybody like make fun of mommy boxing. It's, it's what you make of it. So I know I believe it. I started, uh, I've got a friend of mine that has a, uh, MMA, um, business, uh, Jim and yeah. they do everything. And so he was, he'd been trying to get me to get into jitsu and I'm just like, eh, sweaty guys rolling around together. I'm not sure, but okay. You know, whatever I'll do it. And so, but on one side of, you know, we were doing the jujitsu stuff and grappling, but on the other side, they're having the, the cardio kickboxing stuff. And I was like, those people are killing it. And I, I was like, I would be dead yeah, if man. I was on that side of the, of the room. So I can imagine. I can well, imagine. It, it's, it's humbling. I remember one, one time the, the trainer was actually training for a fight. So we had a substitute come in. And she walks in. She's this, like, tiny little Colombian woman, like, five foot nothing, mm -hmm. hundred pounds. She's like, all right, we're doing cardio today. And I was like, all right, holy crap. She was like a little hummingbird on crack. I mean, it uh -huh. was like, I, I was so wiped out after an hour of her just like nonstop boxing, jumping, just doing all it. I was like, okay. Uh, yes. Yeah. Never underestimate the tiny little Colombian lady could <laughs> kick your ass on her way. So, you know, it, it helps keep you humble and, <laughs> so are you are you running right now are you going outside or anything uh you know a little bit but um i just my my new hobby uh, i got a gravel bike mm. um i am i am currently in lubbock texas but i'm i'm hoping to move to uh to new york later when covid's over and you know mm -hmm. be back in a newsroom uh and so uh, a lot of my friends up there commute on bikes and just ride around. And it's it's so hot and windy out here that running is just really, it's not pleasant. Um, and so I, I got a bike to kind of do a little more exploring. And so, and when you get to be 40 plus, your knees are kind of like, yeah, I kind of hate running I, concrete right now. I've started, I actually went back to the gym this past week because um, it was, I I'd had a, my annual exam. Uh, physical exam my doctor like, <laughs> you have obviously not been doing you know compared to last year you know your yeah. vitals are not where they were so you need to get back and doing something and i'm like okay and honestly the gyms are pretty empty right now so i was like okay and so i just yeah. you know, i just get on a, and i said i'm just gonna get on a treadmill and start running. i don't want to really mess with all the machines but if i'm on a treadmill i feel like i'm grabbing everything and so i started at the beginning of the week you know ran a mile okay i made it a mile next time i did two miles yesterday i ran three miles and my calves were like what are you doing like you haven't done anything for yeah. six months why what do you do you think you're david goggins what do you think what is this yeah <laughs> that's yeah take taking it slow and kind of building rebuilding a, a, a base is important Mm -hmm. And I mean, COVID, COVID does legitimately freak me out. I have asthma. And so like, I want to be early on when I was reading, just, you know, it, it affects your lungs and your heart. And so I'd right. I want to be in the best cardiovascular shape. If I mean, I'm going to try my best not to get it, but you, if the most protected person in the world can get it, um, yeah, you want to guarantee you. So I, I'm going to, I'm trying to like, yeah, be as healthy as I can be in case any of these yahoos in Lubbock who don't wear a mask yeah, cough on me. 
Yeah, if you, you get sick, stripes. if you get sick, you want to start with the strongest physiology you can. It's like, all right, I won't be. So I get that. So just the opposite of getting in shape. What have you been baking lately? Oh man, uh, I I would like it to. I'd like to go on the record that I was a sourdough bro well before lockdown. Uh-huh. Um, but it was really hard to find flour for a while there. Um, oh yeah. So. I, I have been baking for a long time uh, in South Africa. My mom was part of like a, a little bakery co-op kind of thing and would make mm-hmm. 20, 30 cakes and cookies and pies a week. And my, my earliest allowance I earned by, by helping her out. Um, I think she got tired of me like dipping my hand in the batter and the mm-hmm. frosting and was like, I'm going to put you to work. So I learned, I learned to bake in the kitchen when I was 10, 11 years old and loved doing it. Um, and then that was my first job in America actually was a cookie artist. Uh, I have excellent penmanship with a piping bag and nice. frosting. Um, and then, you know, I guess a few years ago, um, it's, it's a similar to boxing. Maybe it's a great stress reliever. Mm-hmm. You start off with, you know, nothing. And at the end of it, uh, it's, it's a slow kind of meditative process for me making sourdough. I used to just, blank out like a whole Sunday because mm-hmm. it's a uh, kind of feed it the night before. And then you've got this whole day of stretching and folding and shaping and resting. And, and then at the end of it, you've got a delicious loaf of bread that you can ideally share with your coworkers. So you don't eat the whole thing itself right. yourself, but I, I've got a, I've got a bad sweet tooth. Um, and so I love making cakes and cookies and um, yeah. But early this year, uh, somebody reached out on Instagram and said, hey, "I'm a, I'm a producer on a reality baking show, mm-hmm. and would you consider auditioning?" And I was like, "Haha, this is this is obviously a joke." Uh-huh. Um, but it turns out there's an American version of the Great British Bake Off that they film it in the same tent, yeah. uh, and I'm sure. If your if your students are not familiar, they should definitely check it out. It's an amazing show. But uh, I started the process of auditioning. I think they liked the fact that I was a uh, a guy. They, they kept stressing like, that I ride motorcycles and can make like breads and cakes, and they, they yeah. wanted a like a, a dude who can bake. And it, you know, I had a had a, a much longer beard back then, mm-hmm. um, and so I had to learn. I had to learn to make laminated dough at home uh, for croissant and pan of chocolate and uh yeah i just i love i love doing it um food is is a and again it's so weird because of the the covid thing and uh, i love cooking cooking food uh for friends and family and baking Uh, and bread is just like it's this universal thing you go anywhere in the world well i guess asia Mm -hmm. They, they probably have more of a rice staple but uh you know places in europe and africa that i've gotten to go like there's always there's some bread and it's, it's the, the simplest stuff just some flour water some kind of leavening agent uh-huh. and 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 i mean going back to maybe our our co-religion roots but i mean breaking bread with people is is a is a fine pastime i, just, uh, I look forward to being able to do it again i just remembered something i used to do it was really mean uh i didn't think it was me yeah it was mean <laughs> Uh, on that topic. So I would do a lot of work with like worship designing and trying to figure out like, how do you know, how do we, 
how do we communicate with people in different ways and in, in this sort of world? And one of the things I came up with is on like when we have communion on Sundays, mm -hmm. I would set up a bread maker in the sanctuary behind like the altar somewhere. <laughs> and I would, and I would set the timer where that bread would be ready by the time we got to the part in the service where the communion. And so uh -huh. you start, the service and everything's, and then while well, you know, and in in idea, the idea is maybe the sermon or something is you know relating to it, and then uh -huh. everyone starts smelling bread, <laughs> and then you know, yeah, and then kind of cool, cool, cool thing, the, cool thing when you get out and you break it and it's hot and steamy and whatnot. But I was just like, yeah, I'd forgotten about that until you just mentioned that. But yeah, that I mean, people usually talk about you know the smells and bells of high church. Uh -huh. But I mean, if you're if you're doing a little emotional manipulation with fresh bread, though, that if they get somebody to go forward or you know sort their life out, bread bread is fantastic. It it solves a whole lot of problems. It causes problems. Uh -huh. But <laughs> yeah, if I if I turned out to be celiac or somebody told me like I couldn't have bread anymore, uh -huh. that would be that that'd be pretty that'd be a pretty devastating blow. Uh -huh. um, my wife oh, and I love bread. got really big into CrossFit for a while, and you know mm -hmm. the, the paleo diet was the thing. But my wife is is much like you in the sense that she's baked forever. It's constantly baking. You never walked in the house where something she wasn't baking something. She did cakes, cheesecakes, cookies. Every the house yeah. always smelled like it. But when we got into the paleo world, we were like, oh, you can't eat all that stuff anymore. So she's she started experimenting with like the paleo bread, um, mm, which like that 19 grains and grass yeah, and stuff. You're using all kinds of like one year for, I bought, I bought her flowers, but I didn't buy flower, like actual flowers. I went to like the health food store flower with you and bought her, you know, a variety of flower. Uh -huh. um, a great Will Ferrell movie with that line in there. And, but yeah, that was a, it eventually, like it started out terrible, but actually by the end of it, she was getting pretty good at it. And so she could sell, she could do the paleo. And I guess now it would be gluten-free bread is a lot of what she was doing. So, yeah, man, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty simple. One thing I learned is that it, it, it's all about, I know people are like your macros and your for me, it comes down to like calories in and calories out. And so mm -hmm. if I'm going to eat a big chunk of real bread with gluten and all that bad stuff, then I just have to work it off. Mm -hmm. It's simpler in that way. I don't have to think about, yeah, 19 different seeds that have to be ground up. I, I, I like wheat. I'm old fashioned. I like it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, let's go back to Abilene because I want to talk about two things. Uh, one. Yeah. One, I want to talk about the egg photo, and then the other is is okay. my old coworker Merlin Mann, who we inadvertently, Mann. we inadvertently realized that we both knew. yeah. So tell me about the yeah. egg photo. Well, I, I, well, I, I can I can start with Merlin because okay. that's uh, you know especially for your students, um, a mentor is so valuable, and so Merlin was. Uh, he, he kind of worked at the paper and was a faculty member at the, at the university mm -hmm. and really just w when I expressed an interest in becoming a journalist, uh, he, you know, we'd, we'd go to lunch at 
my favorite Chinese place in town. And he would talk about, talk about that, um, you know, just about some of his experiences, uh, coaching. And then when he was an editor at the paper would actually like give me some of my assignments mm-hmm. and would have to fix, fix everything that I did. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I, I don't think he was, he wasn't around too long before he left for Arkansas, where mm-hmm. I guess you crossed paths with him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, ha- reaching out to people, I think like people aren't going to knock, you know, tap you on the shoulder and go, I'd like to be your mentor. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. uh, re- reaching out to fo- identifying people that, that can help you, um, learn and grow and then mm-hmm. actually asking for that relationship. Um, cause it, it, it involves an investment of time and energy and, um, you know, it's not necessarily a casual thing. It, it can be, you know, there, there's different levels, but yeah, find somebody that, that can help and actually make the ask, like say, I would like you to, to be a mentor or could we, could we go to lunch and talk about this or that, or here's a story I wrote. Would you look at it? Um, very, very important. And, yeah, if if it hadn't been for like some some lunches over cheap Chinese food, uh, I might have gotten discouraged. I, I think if, if nothing else, the fact that he he was kind of like, you know, that encourager to say, mm-hmm. you know, keep keep doing this, keep trying to get better. Um, yeah, I, I knew what. So I was there when we hired when he got hired there, and so when he came on, you know, he was kind of this crusty old you know old veteran and newspaper guy. He's an old newspaper guy, which is what you know, and we we needed that and. I knew we'd made a good decision as soon as I started hearing students complaining about how picky he was about their writing. And I was like, yeah, you need it. <laughs> Take that. Cause mm-hmm. I'm tired of, you know, uh, but the other thing, you know, going back to what you originally talked about, he's such a good human being. Um, uh, I was also on the uh, board yeah. for one of the local, uh, it's a homeless, uh, advocacy group. And he was on the, the board with that too. And so getting to see like both sides of him, like the, you know, take no prisoners, you're going to use that punctuation properly and, you know, make sure yeah. you write a good lead. And also there's this other side, which is just a tremendously good human being. Um, I'm just like, I hated when he, cause he finally retired and, and went back to Abilene. And so I was just like, oh, I miss that guy. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I can't remember, I don't think Merlin was around when the egg happened, but that, that's just one of the, one of the beautiful stories about working at a little, little paper in West Texas is that you never, you, you might have an idea for how your day is going to go. Mm-hmm. And then a call to the newsroom, um, that, that unfortunately is my most famous photograph ever, um, because I, I don't know, it was just a slow news day or something, but this woman named Cookie, which is, you know, automatically that that's right. pretty great. Right. Well, woman named Cookie called the newsroom and said that, um, talked to the clerk that uh, one of her chickens had laid a big egg. And I remember my desk was right across from him. And he was kind of like, Got a woman says something about a big egg. You you, you draw this, and I'm like, sure, why not? I'll talk yeah. to because we you, you get a lot of crazy calls at the newspaper. Um, mm-hmm. I used to get jail mail from legitimately mentally ill people, mm-hmm. or somebody like, what time is what time is Days of Our Lives on? You know, 
they would call the newspaper for all kinds of fun reasons. And right. so I was like, everybody else was out working. Um, and I don't know, maybe I didn't have that much going on. I was like, I'll talk to her. So transfers the call and I talked to her and she just is going on about how big this egg is. And I was like, Can, you know, like how big? And she told me, and I was like, that, that can't be right. Uh-huh. Um, I think she, she, she meant like what she was saying made it sound like it was going to be the size of a softball. Uh-huh. And so I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to drive out to this woman's farm and do a story about her egg who laid a giant or her chicken who laid a giant egg. Got to get, get the right one uh-huh. first. Um, so I, I drive out there and she points out the chicken in the yard that she thinks laid it. And <laughs> we go inside and she, she shows me there's like one of her regular eggs and then this giant egg. And she's just going on about how she thinks it's a, a mutant super egg. I can't remember what we called it, but it was very obviously large. Did the chicken... So I photographed her holding it and she put it in the egg thing. And then we got out, uh, I think I took along a pica pole from the, from the newsroom to like measure it. Mm-hmm. And, and then, and so I'm like, okay, this is just going to be one of those weird stories. Did, just out of curiosity, uh, did the chicken she... look? At, did the chicken look like it had PTSD or anything like that from delivering this thing? No, they they, they, they all look good? they all look fine. N- nothing's traumatized. Yeah. Okay. No, no, nothing. No, no animals were harmed in the production of that egg. Okay. That I could tell. Um. So I'm I'm wrapping up. I've got a I've got a couple of quotes from her about the the mutant super egg and. I got these pictures, and then she said, "Do you think I should crack it?" I'm like, "Well, of course <laughs> you should crack it, especially before the TV guys get wind of this, right? Because that's you know you always want you want the exclusive, you want to scoop the other guys." Right. So I'm like, "I I am going to own Super right. Egg," <laughs> and so you know she gets ready, she gets a plate, and I get my camera, and she she cracks it open, and out comes an a yolk and a white and a whole other egg like just in there it's... and she's like oh my god and i'm like well that's weird I've never seen that <laughs> she cracks she cracks that one open and it's just it's another egg exactly um and so i was like are you gonna like you can make an omelet out of that you're gonna fry she's like oh i don't think i can eat it she thought this was really something strange and and mutant mm-hmm. um so i think she just put it down the the garbage disposal i go back to the newsroom i called uh someone in the the bird department at texas a&m i think mm-hmm. um <laughs> So here's the story, and he was like, "Oh yeah, it's not that crazy." That apparently, in the in the process of laying an egg, if a chicken gets scared, it can go up instead of out, and so it goes back up into the egg making place. And so the chicken just made another egg around this egg, and then it it came out on Cookie's farm. And uh, I'm not sure if your students are aware, but most local papers are members of the Associated Press. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a not, not-for-profit association, and so you get their stuff, but you're supposed to give them your stuff. And so out on the wire that day went pictures of Cookie's Super Mutant Egg and a little write-up about the whole experience. And I guess something in the water that day, it just it made it to NPR, Texas Monthly wrote about it. it <laughs> It went out on the wire, and then all of these other member newspapers and TV stations picked it up, and it started appearing in photo galleries. So now 
like that picture has gone around the world millions of times and is still like if i if i google myself to like see what happened it's still just this this giant super egg so you know you'd like to think as a journalist you're gonna you're gonna be known for some big important story you worked on and if i you know when i die years from now somebody's researching they're gonna be like and he once covered the story of the giant super egg <laughs> because that's, that's that's gonna be what what rises to the top of my search results i i think but i mean as as, as a picture it's not bad i mean I, I should probably get a print of that and put it on my you, wall you probably should just, that, that know, should be the thing behind your desk like and that people just don't explain yeah. it it's just there okay great anything yeah. else you want to cover that we didn't talk about man uh not that i can think of i mean it's i mean to be a little cheesy uh -huh. being a journalist has been um you know a few years ago I, I think i was i thought i was ready to get out of it that i was feeling kind of burned out the commuting time the pay was all terrible and i thought you know what i've I'm, I'm ready for a change. And, uh, I went into the, the corporate commercial world for a little while. Mm -hmm. Um, but now being back in journalism for just, you know, a few weeks or a month, uh, it reminds me that like, I, I really do love this. And there's something about like the, the press pass, uh, or being a journalist, it, it's just, it's a way to, when I was working at a, at a small paper and not, you know, as an editor, maybe it's because like I, I am just curious maybe that's one thing that makes me okay at this but mm -hmm. that was like a, a a passport or a permission slip to just without that if i went up and knocked on somebody's door like what's going on here i wonder uh -huh. what's happening they get get off my porch but i remember you know grad school one time i was working for the the local paper and i i drove by a, a prosthetics clinic Mm -hmm. place that makes fake arms and legs and i just knocked on the door and said hi i'm from the I'm from the paper i'm curious about what you guys do here could could i hang out for a little while and they were like well come on in and they showed me this special hand that's bluetooth powered and i'm just like holy cow i've gotten to travel around the world and meet incredible mm -hmm. people and tell some fun stories and uh it's you know, I'm I'm not wealthy. I don't know if I'll ever be able to retire or we'll just die at a desk someday. Mm -hmm. But man, to, uh, at the Missouri workshop, the Missouri photo workshop, um, there's a uh, it's it's kind of a, a tradition. There's a guy named Jim Richardson has done it for years. He covered this small town of Cuba, Kansas, uh, and it became this incredible body of work where he just went to this small town over and over again for all mm -hmm. these years. Um, and they, they do this show and it's just this, you know, what see, seeing that and the ability that, that photojournalists that journalists have to, to tell the stories of community, um, it really is an incredible privilege. And I think a lot of times we can get, we can get cynical and get salty about the, the economic problems and the, the just all this, the, the negative stuff. I think we talked about today, the news and all that kind of stuff but man at the end of the day getting to do this to to talk to people to try to understand the world 
to to help other people understand the world. It's super, super cheesy. But if your friends have not, your, your students have not watched The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, oh, I would really? highly recommend it. Oh, yeah. Because there aren't a whole lot of there aren't a whole lot of movies out there about photo editors. Uh-huh. So I, I love it. Uh-huh. But in particular, that uh, I, I think it's fake. I think it was made up for the movie. But that that whole motto of Life Magazine back then about uh, I can't even remember the exact wording of it. But man, to like to go out into the world and to 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 see things and to to share that with with your readers or your viewers mm-hmm. that's pretty pretty incredible. So it's if, if you can make it work economically, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. if that means busting your ass, you know, I, I waited tables. I worked, I, I, I edited master's theses for years to pay my rent so that I could go do, you know, learn to be a journalist at night and on mm-hmm. the weekends. And so, you know, uh, I, when I taught uh, at Maryland, I actually used to try to discourage my students from, pursuing journalism knowing in a way that the ones who would make it would be the ones who would hear that and go ah screw you i'm gonna do this anyway uh-huh. i'm gonna find a way to make it happen whether that means marrying a doctor or a lawyer that could work <laughs> winning the lottery or you know bust your ass doing two or three jobs to, mm-hmm. to make enough money to go out and do a story that you care about and get out in front of people and it's it's a it's an incredible privilege to get to to tell people stories and so shouldn't be taken lightly um but yeah if you can find a way to do it it can be pretty rewarding dude i don't know if you can not i don't know if you can star (laughs) but i do not think you can end better than you just did so i'm gonna i'm gonna click the stop button hey um i'll stay on i'll stay on here as we close out here in a little bit but uh um Greg, thanks. And just out of curiosity, for my students who want to follow you on Instagram or whoever else out there wants to get in touch with you, <laughs> how, where where yeah. can you be found? Uh, Greg KB is my Instagram handle, and that'll that'll link you to my website, which has got my email address. And yeah, uh, reach out. I love looking at work, and uh, being an editor makes you just a professional busybody. You get to have opinions on things, but yeah, I, I love working with students who, who have some sort of passion uh, for this. Love looking at looking at story ideas and pitches and portfolios and offering some help uh, if I if it can be of help. You know, some feedback and some criticism, critique. Critique. They need which, to critique. Uh, man, oh, uh, you know, I mean, you 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 men, you mentioned it a little bit. Uh, that's one thing you definitely have to get used to. Uh, you got to have a bit of a thick skin and and know that it's it's to make the work better, not mm-hmm. just to pick somebody apart. Um, right. But uh, I did see that in some of my some of my my undergrad colleagues and and other students. Um, you know, people make fun of of this generation and their participation trophies and all that stuff. Learning how to to take critique and appreciate it and seek it out is is another valuable skill. To mm-hmm. not take everything personally, um, but yeah, it, it's a skill just like any other that you got to develop. Uh, having somebody tear your work apart to make it better—it <laughs> stings, right? But uh, also worth it. Okay, thank you very much, sir. Have a great day.